You know, running is just part of being human. It's not rocket science, or is it? Maybe running is rocket science. Well, we're going to find out more about that on today's episode of the Movement Movement, the podcast for people who want to know the truth about what it takes to have a happy, healthy, strong body. Starting feet first, you know, those things are your foundation. We're going to break down the propaganda, the mythology, and sometimes the flat out lies that you've been told about what it takes to run or walk or hike or play or do yoga or cross, whatever it is you like to do. And to do that enjoyably, efficiently, effectively. Did I mention enjoyably? It's a trick question. I know I did. Uh, because look, if you're not having fun, do something different until you are. You won't stick around and do it if you're not having a good time. Uh, we call this the movement movement because we're creating a movement that involves you. And I'll explain that in a second about natural movement, because we think that using your body the way bodies are designed to be used is probably going to be the most efficient, effective, and enjoyable thing to do. The movement part about you is simple. This is a grassroots kind of groundswell thing to break through years of propaganda. And so all you need to do is simple. Follow us, um, tell people about what you discovered. So go to www.jointhemovementmovement.com. You can subscribe and hear about upcoming episodes. You can find out all the places that we have episodes. You can find out how to find us on uh, Facebook and Instagram and you know all those places that you can find us at. It's all obvious. Just go to jointhemovementmovement.com. Okay. Uh, oh, I didn't even introduce myself. I'm Stephen Sashin, uh, and uh, I do whatever I do in addition to being CEO of Zero Shoes. Zero Shoes. So let's jump in. Melissa, such a treat to have you here. Why don't you tell people who you are and why you're here? All right. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me, Stephen. Well, my name is Melissa Corley Carter, and who am I? I am the barefoot dancing rocket scientist. And we, we can unpack that in a little bit, but um, basically, well, I, I actually am a rocket scientist. <laughs> Uh, turned writer, artist, leadership coach, and what I like to call a resilience champion. Uh, so I'm all about resilience. Uh, I spent 20 years chasing the dream to be an astronaut. And when that dream was shattered, I eventually rediscovered my true purpose in life, which is to build grounded leaders, connected humans, and powerful teams that change the world. Uh, so what that basically means, in other words, is that what you do for people's feet and their bodies, I do for their souls, which is help them live more naturally and authentically and have more fun doing it. And really, we're doing the same thing because I think when our feet are grounded, uh, our souls have a lot better chance of being grounded as well. So uh, that's a little bit about what I Please do. tell me that you actually own a t-shirt that says, yes, I am a rocket scientist. I own more than one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I love it. Um, I think the only one that could top that is, yes, I am a brain surgeon. Right. You know, it's funny, actually, in my one of my graduate school years, my roommate was actually studying neuroscience. So we joked that we had a rocket scientist and a brain surgeon in the same room. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Um, by the way, you have in the background um, of where you are a book that has your name at the bottom of the book. So why don't we touch on that really briefly? We're going to come back to it. But, you know, since that's part of what got us here, say something about that. And also say something about all those stuff, things on the wall to your right, to my left. So awesome. it's, I like people's backgrounds. They say quite a bit. So hit me with your background. All right. Awesome. Um, yes. So I do have a book coming out. It's coming out in June and it's called Running the World Marathon Memoirs from the Seven Continents. So uh, it, I did run a marathon on all seven continents and it's, uh, it's not just writing. It's also, it's a coffee table book. So there's photos and stories of the journey and lessons learned, life lessons. Uh, and just, it was just obviously an amazing experience. So, uh, so that's what it's about. Uh, it's also about, you know, it's ostensibly about running. It's also really about the journey towards living an authentic life. So that whole shattered dream astronaut thing. Um, it's kind of about that too, and how recovering from shattered dreams and, and just building the resilience to, to really believe that the true dream is being fulfilled in every moment that you show up as you. 
Well, now, before you go to the stuff on the right of you on the wall, I want to touch on the book a bit. First of all, um, since you, I've seen this, it's beautiful and inspiring and interesting and fascinating. And, you know, running is one of those things where you can just go out your front door and do it, but you did it on all seven continents. I'm going to highlight the seven part, six of those piece of cake. The seventh one, and I'm not talking about North America, a bit of a challenge. Do you want to say more about just what inspired that, a little more about what inspired the journey, just literally technically how you did it, especially that wacky seventh continent one? Yes. Um, Antarctica. So, oh, that, uh, you know, I know of Australia. All right, whatever. Nice, nice, awesome. Um, so I also do want to just take a quick moment to say thank you, Stephen, um, because you you have, your name's on the back of the book too. I thank oh, I thank nice. you for the shout out that um, that you gave to the Pleasure. book and for reading Pleasure. it. So thank you. Uh, so really the where to start with the journey. You know, as far as my first marathon, I had gotten into running just a little bit more. My mom uh, mentioned, hey, you know, there's a marathon in Big Sur, and Big Sur was a place that my family had spent a lot of time, really loved it, and and I was like, oh wow gosh, if I had the chance to run in Big Sur, that would be really cool. So I ended up deciding to train for the marathon. And then it was at that expo that I passed a table um, that had a brochure for something called the Seven Continents Club. And so it was it was all about running marathons on all seven continents. And just from the beginning, it just grabbed my attention, it grabbed my imagination. And I thought, wow, that's really cool. And of course, kind of the first place your mind goes is Antarctica, really? And I'll say that was actually part of the piece that also pulled me in, you know, Somehow all the others seemed, I mean, it just all seemed doable, but Antarctica was like, wow, that's that's just a step beyond. That's amazing. And how cool would that be, literally? And and while it might have been a a slight deterrence of, you know, oh my gosh, how can you actually do that? It was actually that what pushed me over the edge. Because once I I got the idea, I was like, well, I mean, I can't not do it now. How how do you not go run in Antarctica once you have the idea? So, uh, so it really just grabbed my attention and, and excitement and enthusiasm. Well, to the point that you made, how do you do it technically? <laughs> well, you know, in fact, it's it was interesting. It was it certainly ended up feeling like we had run a marathon in Antarctica, but it was different from what I expected. There was a lot of mud. It was a little rainy. It was a little windy. We were in the Antarctic Peninsula. So I will say what surprised me, we were, we were there at the end of the Antarctic winter. So it was February. Oh, wow. So it was kind of as warm as it's ever going to be. Yeah. You know, it, so it was actually about 40 degrees, but it was also about 40 mile an hour wind. And uh, so it was windy. It was raining. It was muddy. It was rocky. And, you know, so it was, it was intense. I mean, it was definitely the, yeah, definitely felt like you ran a marathon in Antarctica. And, uh, was the winner a penguin? The winner was not a penguin. We saw lots of penguins and there's lots of cute pictures of penguins in the book. So <laughs> how many people did run? How many did run? And, and that I'm like backing up. I mean, I'm just so curious how they set the course. Mm-hmm. So we ran on King George Island, which has a lot of international bases on it. So right. it was actually kind of fun. We ran a multi-loop course. So we started in Russia and then we ran to China and then to Uruguay and then came back and then ran to, um, to let's see, Chile and... And there was one other one. Anyway, so we ran, we basically ran from one country to another, to another, to another, to another, uh, and ran, there were people doing the full marathon and people doing the half marathon. So, so some people were running, they did that loop twice and then added an extra half loop on. And then um, there was a half loop for, for the half marathon. So there were probably about a hundred people in all. Uh, and we actually took a ship from the Southern tip of South America across the Drake passage to Antarctica. So it was, it was like a two week cruise, basically, you know, a rugged cruise. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. Yeah. The, the um, I love the idea of going to Antarctica and the part that makes me the most nervous is that 
boat ride part um, where every time I watch a video of people, t- you know, going across the straits, like uh, that looks like the least fun thing I can imagine as a guy who tends to get seasick. So Ooh, yeah, mm-hmm. you, know, you, you can drama me the hell out of yourself, but even still, the thing with dramamine <laughs> is like, wow, I know I'm seasick. I just don't feel like throwing up yet. Um, <laughs> really doesn't really work for me. So, all right. So back to the things that are on your wall. So what's to your right? So on my right are actually collages that I made for the marathons. Uh, so, and those, there's actually pictures of them in the book as well. Uh, but I, I like collage. I like taking pictures. And after actually my marathon in Athens, I, I had gotten a race poster and I had all these other kind of souvenirs and things. And I was like, oh, you know, I should make a collage out of this. And so then I went actually back to, to Big Sur and made a collage from all the things that I had saved from that. And then it just became a tradition. I made a, I made a big collage after each, each race and had them on my wall. And I've, I've actually had them on my wall for, for quite a while and didn't realize, I didn't get the idea to make this book until the summer of 2019. Uh, but, but they've been standing here waiting for me to do something for quite a while. This is going to sound like a weird question. Um, and I say that only because it sounds weird in my head as I start to ask it. Is running on the different continents, let's leave Antarctica out of the equation for a second, but is running these events or even just running at all on these different continents uh, different from place to place? And if so, how? I'm also curious about just sort of the training component versus the doing a marathon component when you're in these on these different in these different places. Sure. So yes, running from continent to continent, running the marathon is very different. Uh, and, and depending on, you know, what the terrain is, particularly what the weather is, the somewhat challenging part is you do all this training at home in, in an environment you're familiar with, you know, eating the things you normally eat and running the paths you normally run. And then you go to some other country where sometimes, you know, especially if you're kind of I, on a lot for a lot of them, I was on with a tour group. So we would go to the you know, traditional places to eat. And, and so now all of a sudden, and I, and I tended to be a little bit nervous about the things that I ate right before a marathon, because it would affect, it would affect how I felt during the run. So all of a sudden you're in a foreign country for the first time eating things you don't normally eat and, uh, and, and being, you know, jet lagged, you know, you're on the other side of the world. And, and so there's a lot of factors at play that influenced it. Uh, And certainly, you know, for instance, the great wall of China, you know, was, crazy that would that one actually took me the longest and there was a lot of other stuff involved in why that took me the longest but but you're you know stairs that go practically straight up and and you're not really running at that point so uh you know it's more like hiking or climbing uh so so i for me though i'm not very fast so i was always my goals were to finish and not be last Right. So, you know, this is set the bar low and clear it often. Some of my favorite authors like to say so. So it was it was really about the adventure. So I didn't I didn't really worry that the terrain was different or that, you know, who knows what had happened during you know the past few days. And when we try to run around the places like we even run in through the city, through the city blocks to do some training. But by the time you actually get on the trip you're either in shape or you're not, you know, you're going to, you're going to make it or not. So, um, so I, I really just tried to approach each one as an adventure and I was never really tied to finish time or, uh, or anything like that. It was really about the journey itself. Uh, and one of the big things that I came to through the course of all of my marathons was that the run is the win. Yeah. So it's not about winning. It's about how you run the race and, uh, and just have the experience and savor the experience. I think you missed an opportunity though. Um, see this goal to not be last, you missed the opportunity of people 
people like really cheering you on to get in before they shut the course down. And so like, you know, as a sprinter, as a 59 year old, well, I'll be 59 in a couple of weeks. I say, let's call me a 59 year old sprinter. Um, I can tell you that when I'm at a, at a, at a, an open race where there's, you know, high school kids all the way up to people in their eighties, the high school and college kids, people go crazy because these guys are super fast. And then mm -hmm. people over 80, people go insane because they're over 80. And people in my age group, they don't, uh, they, they leave. They, they go out and have <laughs> lunch and they come back. We get no attention whatsoever. Um, and it's, uh, it, it's, a, it's a thankless job. Um, so <laughs> how, how did the locals respond in these different places? They loved it. I mean, there were people and all of them there were, well, except maybe Antarctica, because there weren't really people there besides people associated with the race. But but in, in most of the places there were, and actually I would say Kenya, we were also in a wildlife park. So so not so many people just on the side of the road cheering you on. Yeah. But but in the places where you, we were just running through town or running through, you know, the streets and stuff, there were people just lined the streets cheering right. and, and shouting and waving and everybody loved it. It was really cool. So we really did have the support of the locals. And it's, I mean, it always motivates me to see someone cheering and clapping. So yes, I'm, I'm sorry that you were in the category that nobody, you know, cheered for. I'll cheer for you. <laughs> the, the biggest explosion in an audience that I've experienced other, there was two. They were kind of back to back. This is about 12 years ago. I'll do the first one first or the second one first. The second one was uh, my wife and I, we ended up in Berlin just in time for the World Track and Field Championships where Usain Bolt set the world record. And I oh, happen cool. to be because my, because Lena's, uh, she was an exchange student in Germany. Her host sister's husband was the head of Berlin tourism. So we land in Berlin. He goes, do you want to go to the meet? And it's like, yeah. And we end up in the VIP section with nobody else there. So we're like five rows off the track at the 70 meter mark and watching Usain Bolt, you know, run 958. As soon as I saw 958 and I kind of explode and he's next to me, he's like, what's that? What's all that about? And just wait. And about two seconds later, you hear 70,000 people lose ah. their minds. So mm -hmm. But it was a week earlier in Finland for the World Masters Track and Field Championships where I had a horrible race, but that's not important. Um, <laughs> there was a guy there who was 101 and he wow. did the field events. So he came out on his walker. Uh, he puts the walker oh down. He takes like two steps to the line to hand him the shot put, which I think for 101 weighs like two pounds. Doesn't matter. He's like, yeah. it goes about 10 feet and the crowd goes insane. Mm -hmm. because we're all mm -hmm. thinking, I want to be that guy. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So much fun. Um, so yeah. if somebody wants to emulate any or all of what you did, what would you say to them? I would say, you know, take it one step at a time. Ask yourself what what you really want, like what, what's the goal behind the goal? It's always a big thing for me. What, what do you hope you will achieve by doing this? So make sure kind of your intentions are aligned. Cause if, if you're doing it just to say you did, then, you know, it may be a struggle, but if you're really actually excited about it and really into doing what it takes to prepare for it and, and to complete it, go for it. And it's challenging and it's a long period. It, well, it took me five years to go through them all. Uh, but I, you know, some people take longer. Uh, some people, I don't know, have probably done it faster. I'm sure there have been. So it's all about doing anything for the long haul is, is all about taking one step at a time and, and being patient with the process and enjoying the process, not, you know, not waiting till the end to celebrate. So I'm also all about celebrating small wins and, and acknowledging our progress along the way and being willing to, uh, to adjust your, your course and your training plan. So, you know, if you're training for something and you get injured or you have some kind of backslide, take a deep breath and just start small again. And so it's, it's really about giving yourself grace and, and patience and just plugging along one, one foot in front of the other. 
It's an interesting thing. Um, I get calls and emails from people all the time saying, you know, there's this marathon coming up in six weeks and I want to switch to zero shoes and run it. And I go, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Uh, why don't you just switch and then see if you're ready? And if you're mm-hmm. not, then just drop the idea because you're ready when you're ready and you're not when you're not. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I mean, the number of times where I paid to enter a meet and then for whatever reason, couldn't. And the first couple of times, like, oh, I just wasted $35. And, you know, the last couple of times, like, yeah, you know, whatever. It's 35 Right, right. So mm-hmm. what, with some of the people that you were running with for some of these races, this idea of, how'd you put it, of, you know, sort of having the right motivation not to just do it. What's the other, mm-hmm. which is the anti-Nike slogan, of course, don't just do it. You know, talk to me about either some of the other things more specifically that would be motivating other than I just want to do it. And if there were any, anyone that was running with you who had that, just get it done to say, I did it thing. Could you see that their experience was different than what you were experiencing? Great question. You know, I think for me personally, as I have reflected on why I run or why I think people run, I think people run marathons or take on any big challenge because it's not just about running marathons. You know, marathoners are just, you know, one manifestation of people who like goal setting. And I I think we really do that to connect with the part of ourselves that hopes and believes that we're stronger and greater than we think we are, Mm -hmm. um, or that we think is possible. And I don't think we necessarily verbalize that. It's not like, oh, I'm going to go run a marathon because I just want to, you know, know that I have some more, you know, some power, some inner power. We don't think that consciously, but I think that's what comes out of getting kind of beaten down and getting back up again and and getting injured and coming back from it or or doing too much too soon and, and getting back to it. So so I think there's that internal motivation of can I? Can I do it? And learning that we can do so much more than we think is possible. So it's really about self-discovery. And so I don't know that I I really noticed anybody say running alongside me who wasn't, you know, I don't know, who had some kind of superficial motivation. Maybe they did, but I think especially at the Great Wall, which was just a unique experience of of running with people that I had not normally done. Usually I just sort of banter with whomever I happen to be passing, you know, but I, I hadn't actually started or finished a marathon with anyone besides the Great Wall, which Again, you can read the book for more details, but uh, but I ended up running the first 21 miles with um, with a woman who paced me the whole time. And then I came across uh, someone else who was pretty much done, had given up, and uh, I was able to bring him through the finish line. So there was a lot of just amazing teamwork and camaraderie. And, and so it became not at all about the race, but about the human aspect and human connection. So for me, running a marathon, even with people I never even learned their names, you know, it's it's really about being something a part of being part of something bigger than yourself, and and being out here with the same crazy goal as somebody else for completely different reasons. Uh, so you know, it's a, everyone's motivation is a little bit different, and, and I do think again at heart it's really that you know connection to something greater, but but people have different conscious motivations for it. And so it's it's really just being a part of that together as everyone is fulfilling their conscious and unconscious dreams. Um, you know, it's funny. It's like, we want to discover you can do more than we think. Um, my goal is to always do less than I think. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm an a geek. Um, you know, for me, running 26.2 miles, I don't like to drive 26.2 miles. <laughs> Um, a friend of mine used to do a joke as a guy named William Cornell. He used to say, you know, the triathlon is, you know, two mile swim and then a 112 mile bike ride and then a marathon. And I was going to do one the other day, but you have to wake up at like 6 a.m. So, <laughs> which I, kind of, nice. 
Um, I think one of the one of the funniest videos I've seen is actually you and your little short try where oh, <laughs> you could have like you go in the little lap pool and then yeah. you, could, you know ride the bike and then run. The, yeah, it's it cracks my, me up. Hilarious. You know, one of my goals, and for anyone who hasn't seen it, you know, just do a search on YouTube for world's shortest triathlon, um, and uh, you'll see I did a triathlon in five point eight seconds, and that was only because the transition slowed me down. I think I could have broken five. <laughs> Um, my goal actually is to find like some fitness club, some fitness chain, like Lifetime Fitness or someone who wants to do that event as a fundraiser for something. Cause it's just so goofy and mm -hmm. we've actually done it, uh, in other places and people just show up and they wear costumes and it's just a riot to just see who can do, you know, the super fast, goofy triathlon. So we did it once with a slip and slide and adult big wheel bikes and mm -hmm. Fun was a sack race. I mean, just anything that's, you know, a wet <laughs> thing, a wheeled thing, and a human powered thing. It's just, it's really, yep. really entertaining. Love it. Love it. Now, you know, we teased at the beginning of this episode, and by we, I mean me in this case, uh, about running and uh, rocket science. Um, so, can you say more? Because you were the one who gave me this idea that running is rocket science. Mm -hmm. And we, I want to talk about astronaut things as well, because that's really fascinating. But what inspired you to make me say running is rocket science? <laughs> <laughs> Excellent by question. The way, I am blaming you entirely, just to be clear. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'll take it. I'll take it because okay. it's true. I think it's true. So, <laughs> so rocket science is really essentially, if you think about it, uh, about three things. It's about going from where you are to where you want to be. It's about acknowledging progress and adjusting course. And it's about letting go to lift off. Mm. Oh, that's interesting. So, yeah. So that's the sort of, for me, the metaphorical relation of rocket science to everything. So I think everything is rocket science, but, but particularly running in this case, I tend to focus on resilience in my life as well, but, but, but so running, you know, going from where you are to where you want to be, it's not just in running from point to point, but where are you in your wellness and your fitness level and where do you want to be? And if there's a gap in there, taking one step at a time, one foot in front of the other, you close that gap. So it's all about figuring out what's in the middle and how you get from where you are to where you want to be. Acknowledging progress and adjusting course. Um, if you have ever watched a rocket launch or you know seen a movie like Apollo 13, you might have noticed that there is a constant stream of dialogue as yeah. as you're launching. They're talking about oh we just hit max Q, just maximum dynamic pressure. There's like there's there's milestones along the way that are constantly being communicated about between mission control and the astronauts and everybody's talking. And you know if they're approaching the International Space Station, you know there's you you know how far they have to go as they're closing in and and they're constantly reporting on it. So there's all this acknowledging where we are in the process. And, and even more than acknowledging, it's really about celebrating. So, you know, I mentioned earlier, celebrating the small wins. You don't just wait till the end to celebrate, you know, again, in, in all the, in all the movies, right. They, they always chat, clear, cheer and clap as soon as, you know, the rocket clears the tower. So it's not like we wait till it gets where it's going to cheer. So acknowledging the progress and then adjusting course, well, wait, um, you know, pause, you don't want to pause on the first one. So talk about the running aspect of the acknowledging and small wins and, and, and also, you know, how you were doing that during your running around the world. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. So it's really, again, not waiting till the end of the marathon or the end of the run to celebrate. For me, another thing that came up in the book a lot was hills. Yeah. And, and hills emerged to me as an actual physical manifestation of celebrating small wins. So you have, you know, undulating hills, you get to the top of the hill and there's a little bit of respite, you know, uh, I, I, I'm also a run walker, so I don't run the whole thing. I, I intersperse my runs with walking and particularly at the top of a big hill, I would tend to walk and take a breather. And it was 
wow, look how far I've come. And so it's it's sort of built in waypoints where we can acknowledge our progress and, and celebrate how far we've come. And it's also a way to not be paralyzed by just the, the, the monumental endeavor of running the whole marathon. It's, it, as you say, I mean, it's hard to contemplate even driving 26 miles. You know, I've driven some of the marathon courses I've run thinking, how did I run all this way? You know? <laughs> it's like, I can't even, I can't even believe I did that. But how do you not be paralyzed by, by the magnitude of that endeavor? Well, taking it a hill or just the next, you know, hundred meters or whatever is taking some small chunk that you can focus on. It gives you the, maybe the, or like gives me anyway, the, the motivation to, to, to get through that part of it and then see what comes next. So, um, yeah, breaking it well, down. I, I like the idea that since they don't design the courses where they give you a beer or chocolate when you do get to the top of a hill, that you've got to <laughs> do this internally and, you know, find the thing that works for you as the acknowledgement. Because it, it is, it can be, I mean, look, I, I don't run marathons again, but but I can totally imagine it can be overwhelming if you don't chunk it down, if you don't mm-hmm. you know, start to think of it in smaller pieces and what yeah. you what you're doing for each one of those pieces. And that just, and, and ironically, I mean, it's, it's actually no different in a 12 and a half second sprint is, you know, there's just different pieces that you've got to pay attention to. And it's not that you acknowledge the wins per se. I mean, you're certainly not going, Hey, I made it. But you know, if you get out of the blocks well and drive well, you definitely acknowledge that that definitely carries you into that next phase, the max velocity phase. And if that goes, okay, that definitely carries you into the part where you start getting slower in the last 20 to 30, well, 30 meters or so. Um, and, you know, you're just holding on and, you know, then you finish and then you lie down because you can't breathe. But, um, <laughs> uh, and you don't celebrate that. My, actually, the, the joke that I have about sprinters is at the end of a race, everyone always says, how'd you do? And my answer is now, uh, do you just want a number or can I give you the excuse first? So <laughs> you can never get, because nice. this the other thing, you can never get it perfect. It never right. exactly the way Absolutely. you Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's a, that's a huge piece of it too. And I'll say that's part of the third um, rocket science piece, which is letting go to lift off. And that's letting go of attachment to outcome. Right. So for me, perfection is not about, you know, doing it exactly the way you wanted to do it. It's about, did you, were you engaged throughout the process? You know, perfection is, did you do what you wanted to do and, or, you know, did you adjust as you went and, and consciously, you know, go through the whole, the whole process. So again, run is the win is, is that sort of the perfection piece is not a hundred percent. It's giving it a hundred percent of your effort and, and feeling good about the effort you put in. It's, I don't know if this is um, unique. Uh, well, I'm sure it's not unique to, to running. In fact, I know it's not unique to running. So uh, ignore <laughs> everything I just was thinking. But the thing about sprinting, and I imagine it's really no different for any, it's really no different for any competitive event. Let's go put it that way. You can never get it right. It's never perfect. The intermittent reinforcement component is so high. I mean, it really is like going to Vegas and playing slots because every now and then certain parts or the whole thing feels great and you can't reproduce it. Or, you know, it feels really great except for that little thing. And you're thinking, oh, if I had just, which, you know, if you figure that, oh, I had just thing out the next time, there'll be a different thing that, you know, doesn't go the way you planned. And, and what's so funny is people often think, that that's a problem, but that's actually the thing that motivates you to get to keep moving forward because our brains are wired with that intermittent reinforcement thing to have that be addictively interesting to try to, right. to find that little right. nit that you need to pick, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Which I find and and being okay, being okay with that thing, you know, and saying either I'm going to work on it next time or actually that thing is not as important to me as I thought it was, so maybe I'm not going to do it. You know, it's what's interesting about that is, and I'm wondering about this, I wonder how many people are doing enough 
running or whatever the whatever it is, any event, to really learn that lesson to really because the the way I'm thinking this is going to be a weird tangent. So when I moved out to Boulder, Colorado, one of the reasons was I was doing Zen archery, and the imperial bowmaker <laughs> to the emperor that. of Japan lived in Boulder and <laughs> spoke almost no English, even though he'd been here for 20 years. But the thing about Zen archery, they refer to it as a moving meditation. And mm -hmm. what's interesting about it is that when you're doing this practice where you're always on the edge, you're always trying to perfect something that you can't perfect. And you're mm -hmm. all the way you hold the bow, the way you hold the string, you're always right on the edge of being out of control. So mm -hmm. you're playing this very fine line between controlling and, and being out of control and put all these things together. And basically there's two things that happen over time. The first is you realize that you only get like four thoughts. It's, mm -hmm. am I doing it right? Am I doing it wrong? Are people watching? Um, a little anticipation or anxiety or fear or frustration. That's actually more than four thoughts, but they kind of, you know, coalesce into four basic thoughts. Like what do people think of me? Um, am I anxious and, and looking forward to the future or think about the past? Um, or, you know, there, I don't know, there's a fourth in there somewhere, but then there's the next phase that happens after a number of years. And the reason that I bring up the topic of, you know, can you run enough is that when you're doing the Zen archery thing, all this gets, this whole thing is is compressed into small amounts of time that from the time you pick up the bow and arrow to the time you shoot, you know, maybe a 30 seconds to a minute, let's say, but then you do it over and over and over and over. And here's where you get to the last part where those four thoughts, you just stop giving a crap. Mm -hmm. Just don't care yeah. what you think anymore. And so when they come, they just come and they go and you just do the job. You shoot mm -hmm. the arrow and those things just, you know, are not an issue. And the irony in like just regular Zen practice is it's very hard to get to that point because you get so many different thoughts. And with mm -hmm. running, same thing. You know, like for me, it took years to get to the point of um, just not. You know, if I got injured, it's like, eh, you know, I'm off for a couple of weeks. If a race didn't mm -hmm. go well, a eh, race didn't go well. But yeah. I wonder how many people can have the opportunity to do enough to get to that point where those thoughts that are arising, those things that you believe, eh, you know, whatever. It's just a thought. I agree. Well, and I think that's that's why we're here having this conversation. You know, it took me years to get get there too, uh, and and it was a lot of you know, there's a lot of mindful breathing and a lot of practice before I got to the realization. Oh, you know what? If I just put one foot in front of the other over and over again, the finish line will get here. You know, and and it, it doesn't seem like it takes you that long to figure that out, but it took me a long time. And, no, that, and so there's a huge. It's yeah. a, it's a tricky one. It's really because again, we're I mean we're not wired to think about what's happening in the very next moment, you know, and to focus on what's happening now to get to the very next moment. We're wired to think about what it's going to be like in this imagined future when we accomplish the thing that we think is going to make us happy that really never does. So you know that's how we're built. So it, it's a it's a upside down way of approaching how, your experience. Right. But I, so there's, I teach mindfulness too. And, and, and of course it's, it's a lot of the same principles. It's about, it's not about not having thoughts. It's about just redirecting your attention to your object of focus when you do have thoughts. So it's, uh, and you know, again, that piece of being willing to adjust course that, you know, yeah. Oh, okay. That run didn't go very well, or I didn't make it to that meet or, uh, you know, I don't know that I can run this whole marathon. So maybe I will do some walking during the marathon, being willing to listen to our bodies and, and listen to our goals and adapt our goals. Cause, cause yeah, that thing way out in the future that we're planning for, you know, I mentioned earlier, the goal behind the goal, I think it's really all about figuring out what is it we really want when we decide to do something, what is, what is that thing that we really want? And what are maybe some other ways that we can get there? Cause we have mm -hmm. this 
you know, predefined success. It, you yeah. know, traditional society tells us, oh, you need the fancy car and the white picket fence and the, you know, whatever else to ha- the corner office, you know, to have yeah. made it. And yet people work and work and work and get, they get those things and they wonder why they're not happy. And it's because they didn't actually want those things. They wanted what they thought that thing was going to give them. Well, yes, exactly. It, it's, I mean, that's the thing is we imagine that if we get something, that's the thing that will make us happy, despite the fact that that has never been true. There, there's mm-hmm. a book by Daniel Gilbert from Harvard called Stumbling on Happiness. And the basic premise mm-hmm. in a few sentences is that we're always trying to figure out what will make us happy or keep us from being unhappy in the imagined future. We're horrible at predicting either of those. And we're even worse at remembering how horrible we are at predicting them. And then we think we're special because um, if we found, interviewed a million people who got the thing that we thought we needed to be happy and found out that it didn't make any difference for them, we'd still go, yeah, but if I got it, I mean, mm-hmm. I know all those people who won a lottery were no happier when they got the money, but if I won the lottery, right, you know, it, right, it's, a, of it's course. a very funny thing of human cognition that we do that. It is. But I think that if the more we can learn and I and I do think that there is a, a shift in consciousness, you know, in, in progress, you know, that yeah. that, yes, we are wired a certain way, but our wiring does have the capacity to change. And I think the more that we can realize, yeah, that actually all we need to be happy is to be present in this moment. You know, it's mm-hmm. kind of hard to wrap your mind around really, but, but it's not even just a mind thing. You know, it's a connection to the universe, right? Oh no! So, I mean, it's one of my favorite things is in this very moment, is there anything that's lacking? And I mean, like really look, and if you don't imagine something a minute from now, a year from now, whatever, in this moment, you can't find anything lacking. And if you really sit with that, it will become really hard to think or talk because everything is just so literally awesome. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Point. You know, I also, one of the lessons that's kind of in the book, but also as, you know, as I was thinking about life, I guess something I've realized is that a lot of times what we are chasing is already here. And, and it yeah. actually takes pausing to notice that it's already here that, to recognize that. And I'll say, you know, when I, uh, so I was an active duty Air Force for a little over 11 years and I've been a reservist for the last six. And after I separated from active duty, I was thinking, gosh, what do I actually want to do? Because I was in this quandary. I don't know what I want to be when I grow up. And I kept thinking travel photographer would be really cool. And, and it took me kind of a while to finally realize, wait a minute, I've been a travel photographer, you know, I've done that. And, and, you know, here's the book, but, but yeah, so, so a lot of times we think that something is out in the future, you yeah. know, some lifestyle or some thing that we want. And if we took just a little bit of a pause to take stock of where we actually are, maybe it doesn't look the way it's, I mean, we are imagining it in our minds, but the actual essence of it, we already have. Yeah. And, and I think that would go a long way towards de-stressing because you know, we're constantly obsessed with getting this thing that we think we don't have when we actually do already have it. I think there's another part, which is that we confuse the, that what happens at the end, which is the getting something part. And mm-hmm. the way I like to describe it, I go, um, you don't get satisfaction when you get that thing. You get satisfaction mm-hmm. because once you have it, you can no longer want it. And wanting mm-hmm. is a stressful state to be in. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, it's like you can't want something that you have. And so you automatically let go of that stressful sort of anxiety producing striving thing. And it's very easy to confuse that release with the phenomenon of getting something. Now, the flip side is I say anyone who says money can't buy happiness has never driven my car. Um, and <laughs> I have a Subaru BRZ that I threw a supercharger in before I, but I actually came up with that line when I had a turbo, a, a Toyota Celica turbo all track. And with both of those cars, because in fact, the Subaru is co-designed by Toyota. 
every time I look at it, it just has uh, just the right shape. I just love the look of it. And of course, driving it's super fun. Um, and so there's something to be said for for not um, not thinking that this is about some sort of you know eternal happiness thing, but mm-hmm. uh, but finding things that you can that you interact with on a regular basis that you appreciate. Yeah. And, yeah. And that's something that I think I'll say it this way. I know it's something I overlooked other, literally other than my car. Cause I really never owned anything, but my wife and I just bought this house and we had to do some renovating and it's wacky. We're walking around. We, I mean, everything in there down to the door hinges we picked. And so there's nothing that I see that is not enjoyable because mm-hmm. it's something that I enjoy, which sounds right, kind of right. circular and stupid. Well, so now we're in Marie Kondo territory, you know, um, the life-changing magic is yeah. tidying up, but also just, you know, find joy, you know, every day. And I've, I mean, I've kept a gratitude journal since 2014. Every day mm. I'll write down things that day that, that brought me joy. And it's life-changing. It really is. You actually start to see when you're actually looking for things to be grateful for, this is the life-changing, you know, power of gratitude. You actually start to see more because, you know, particular activating system where our brains find what they're looking for and the patterns right. and everything. So it's the more you look for the things to be grateful for, the less the other stuff gets in the way and you actually form new neural pathways. I know you're all into the yeah. cognitive science, but uh, but yeah, it's, it well, is truly life-changing. You'll appreciate this one. Only recently I started uh, reprogramming my brain by when I realized that one of the things that upset me twice a day uh, or two times during the day was driving to and from work because invariably there was someone driving 15 miles under the speed limit. And did I mention mm-hmm. I own a sports car? So <laughs> I, I mean, I found it just endlessly frustrating when someone was driving 40 in a 55 mile hour zone. No, I would never use the right or left turn lanes illegally as passing zones, but that's not the important. But the important part is that what I decided somewhat spontaneously a couple of weeks ago was that anytime somebody was driving under the speed limit in front of me, I would use that as a reminder to think of things I'm grateful for. And ah. the fun part is, you know, that experiencing the gratitude thing is fun. And I can't say that I no longer am bothered by people who drive under the speed limit in front of me. I will say that I've noticed a diminution of my anxiety about it or my annoyance about it. Mm-hmm. So it hasn't mm-hmm. gone away. It's not like I'm just mm-hmm. loving it, but it's undeniably losing its grip, which has yes. been really interesting. And I'm feeling that the effect of that in other aspects of my life that have no relationship to driving or yes. I mean, anything. Just There's this underlying mm-hmm. hum that's kind of mm-hmm. kicked in lately. It's really yes. interesting. I love it. I love it. And there's a perspective shift there too. And and I want to credit my um, uh, two of my coach trainers, Jen Barley and Karen Sullivan. They love to say, you are the traffic. <laughs> so the next time you're annoyed about the person who's driving too slow or the person who's, you know, tailgating you or not changing their, using their turn signal, uh, you know, think about you're their traffic. And so, so yeah. thinking again, sports car, people don't tailgate me. <laughs> sure. Fair enough. But just in general, right? Like what yeah, you're yeah. annoyed about that other people are oh, doing yeah, of course. is what are you doing to annoy them? It's not, the world does not revolve around you. Absolutely. You know? <laughs> Absolutely. So it's a, it, it's a huge <clears throat> shift. It can my, my change favorite, your attitude about everything. My, my favorite, um, sorry, I know we go on these tangents, but that's what happens. My favorite, the world does not revolve around you story is a Zen archery story. So I'm at an intensive retreat where we're just practicing all day, every day. And I happen to be at the front of the line where the Imperial Bow Master, Master the Emperor of Japan is sitting five feet in front of me, watching me like a hawk. So I take my first shot and he gives whatever correction there is. And then I'm, you know, doing the second shot and I could not be more self-conscious because, uh, you know, I knew this 
this guy was looking at me like a hawk. And I mean, the whole thing, it was okay. But I mean, the self-conscious factor was through the roof. And as soon as I finish, when you finish, you're looking towards the target and he's sitting in front of me if I were looking straight ahead. So I finished shooting and I turn my head back and I'm ready to catch a glance of, you know, whether I did better or worse. And he's asleep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was, I mean, I, I, I almost burst into hysterics, you know, all that self-conscious effort for nothing. He did yes. not care about me at all. It was great. Absolutely. Yeah. And actually, so I'm going to bring that around to that third piece of rocket science again, which is letting go to lift off. And, you know, again, rocket science wise, obviously as the rocket's lifting off, it's letting go of fuel, like tons and tons yes. of it. all the smoke and the flame. And that even, even in space, you make course adjustments, you know, with fuel and thrusters, you are always letting go of something in order to get to where you're going and to go faster. You know, the rocket accelerates as it loses, um, loses mass from the fuel. Um, so what we need to let you know, whether it's in running or whether it's in life, is that again, attachment to outcome, whether it's self-consciousness, are people going to approve of what I'm doing? Mm. Or, you know, so many times we just kind of live our whole lives according to someone else's expectations and don't even get to what ours are. And so there's a huge piece of letting go, rewriting old stories. And there's always some kind of fear story mm. that's getting in the way if we aren't, you know, if we aren't humming on all thrusters. So that letting go piece really helps us lift off to our highest potential uh, in life. And in, and in running, it's really, it's letting go of time goals or distance goals, or, you know, you get out there and you listen to your body instead of saying, well, my chart said I had to run, you know, 20 miles in X time today. So I'm going to do that to my own detriment. Right. It's <clears throat> how, you know, be willing to, to let go of your expectations to do what is best for you. One of the ways that I, I know thousands of people now have discovered something similar is when they're finding out how much fun it is to be barefoot and they start mm -hmm. walking around barefoot more often. And even to this day, I mean, I've been doing it for 12 years, but to this day, I'll walk into places. I have the thought that, you know, someone will be disapproving or someone will have some opinion. Uh, mostly I don't care, but, but that's in part from living, you know, in or around Boulder where being barefoot is like the least unusual thing you could do. Um, right. Walking around, you know, breastfeeding their dog or something. But, uh, <laughs> but that's actually a really fun one to discover that most people don't care. And the worst mm -hmm. thing that someone's going to say is something you already believe. Like, you know, you're crazy for doing that. Yeah. I think that too sometimes, um, mm -hmm. and I totally get it. You're going to get injured. Uh, I, I worry about that too every now and then. It hasn't happened yet, but you know I, I'm concerned about it. You hippie freak, never smoked pot, but I know where you're going with that. So, uh, <laughs> but it really isn't. It, and my favorite thing to say when people talk about being barefoot, I go, "Would you have the same comment if we lived at the beach?" And they mm -hmm. no, I said, "Yeah, then just pretend we're in post earthquake beachfront property." Mm -hmm. There you go. So, yeah. you know, it, it, it's a fun one. Yeah. In a nutshell, or we only have a few minutes, but I, I want to touch on this briefly. How does one train to be an astronaut? <laughs> well, I would say, you know, again, let me just say, I didn't actually make it to being an astronaut. I wanted to be an astronaut. Uh, and so, you know, I studied all the math and science I could in high school and, you know, uh, majored in engineering in college, got a PhD in astronomical engineering, and it just did all, and I enjoyed them while I was doing it. So it wasn't like, I always told myself, I'm not going to just check boxes to get to the right. astronaut thing. And, and if I decide that I don't like what I'm doing, I'm, I'm you know, not going to, not going to, you know, keep going. But it was ever since fifth grade, 
grade, you know, astronaut came and talked to my class and, you know, I was done. So I was that kid, right, who always wanted to be an astronaut, just kind of went a little further down the path than a lot of people do. But so, you know, I was I was just doing all the things I was preparing and, you know, getting all the science background and, uh, you know, doing doing the things. And when I find that, but I always had bad eyesight. So for, you know, I knew I had disqualifying eyesight, but eventually they started allowing eye surgery, corrective eye surgery. So I was kind of waiting for that time. I knew that I would need that because definitely I might, I would never have cut it with my eyesight as it was. So they started allowing LASIK and I went out and got LASIK 2020 vision, good to go. And so I actually applied in 2012 and again, had all the background for it and everything. And it turned out that my pre-LASIK eyesight was so bad that I was disqualified anyway. Oh my God. So yeah. So yeah. Weird. It, so, I mean, there was a, apparently in the fine print, it's like, oh yeah, if you were more than minus eight, you know, it's just, you don't even bother because risk of detached retina, like things like that. Right. And quite honestly, so many people apply, they can afford to be picky, right. They don't need the person who, you know, has had eye surgery. They have bazillions of people have perfect eyesight who are qualified. So, um, although I imagine for a while it did have that ring of, uh, you had a bad haircut in junior high, so we're going to have to pass. Yeah, it was devastating. I mean, I really had wrapped up my entire identity in wanting to be an astronaut. I told everyone I had ever met that I was going to be an astronaut. So for me, this was also, this was not just about not being an astronaut. It was, it was identity. It was how, what am I going to tell people, you know? And I was kind of afraid of who I would be. I didn't know who I would be. And there's a lot of this in the book too, kind of going through this you know, coming to terms and recovering from this, but with decades, you know, of life experience and looking back, I do realize now that I think when I was in fifth grade, right. And had this whole astronaut thing, you know, I was, it was really an intuitive knowing, this sounds a little woo woo, but intuitive knowing of my spiritual connection to the universe. Like I wanted to be connected to the cosmos. And I think when I was in fifth grade, you know, there's this tangible idea of be an astronaut, you know, you like space, be an astronaut. Okay, cool. I'll do that. And so, so what I've come to since then is that, you know, I mean, the universe is a pretty amazing place. And the more we listen to our intuition and just, you know, get grounded and connected. And again, the barefoot piece for me is really all about grounding and, and connecting to our, our true sources of inspiration and power. And so I am literally, I feel connected to the universe on a daily basis. So I am living the dream. You know, <laughs> I love and, it. and like literally, so oh, that's, that's it's exciting. Funny. So it's so getting to that point. I, I think again, the book is and just my you know I, what I feel like my example of life is really about that resilience of realizing what it is you really wanted. And yes, this thing that you wrapped your identity around was maybe not the best way to go about that. Like I am actually so grateful today for that, for the gift of that rejection, that it freed me up to do my real life's work. And it took me a while to see that, I will admit, but I see it now and I am grateful every single day that I get to do what I do. So, yeah, and, and that's what comes through in the book, along with just the the running part and all the stories about that and the information about that. And that's what makes, and of course, the photography makes it really delightful. So if people want to find out more about what you're doing and about the book, please tell them how they can do that. Excellent. Yes. So my website is www.resilienceactually.com. And uh, you can find out about the book at resilienceactually.com forward slash running the world, all one word. And so, yeah, so you can see, you can find out, go to individual services, see what I do to work with people. And uh, I do kind of a lot of few different energy healing, energy leadership kind of modalities and really help people 
rediscover their spark and joy and zest for life. Uh, and because I think it's from that space that we make our highest contribution to the world. And that's really what, what the world and humanity needs. I'm required by law to say that a, unfortunately, someone who didn't become an astronaut just said something about making space or finding. The space. <laughs> so just FYI. Nice. Well, uh, Melissa, thank you so, so much. Um, I hope people do check you out and and pick up the book. It's delightful in many, many ways. And your journey is one that many people can learn from, or many people are already sort of on or experiencing. Um, So, you know, it's one of the things that I like about the sprinters that I met. We're all a bunch of morons. You know, we're all working really hard for something that just gets, you know, worse over time. And we're really competitive, even though there's no value in being that way. We're all old enough to realize that we're like that. So it's like having a secret handshake with other crazy people. so I know there's other crazy people who are on the distant side or the travel side um, or the the personal travel side as well who will enjoy where you're up to. So for everyone else, thank you so much for being here. Um, a reminder again, go to www.jointhemovementmovement.com to subscribe and hear about upcoming episodes, find all the past episodes, uh, see how you can interact with us. If you have any questions or comments or recommendations of people who we should chat about, um, drop me an email. I'm at move at jointhemovementmovement.com. And most importantly, um, between now and whenever we do next, go out, have fun, and live life feet first.